Welcome to Wait, Wait, Naked and Ashamed. I'm Faith Saley. Being a Wait, Wait panelist is an experience like no other. I talked to PJ O'Rourke, Maz Jabrani, and Helen Hong about what they bring to the table and their strategies for winning. Support for NPR comes from MailChimp, who wants you to know that they do all kinds of marketing to help small businesses grow, from building beautiful landing pages to retargeting and audience management. And of course, great email marketing. So while it may seem like MailChimp has outgrown their own name, that just means their business has grown. MailChimp, they do more than mail. PJ O'Rourke brings 50 years of reporting to Wait Wait, but it's not helping him win. Uh, I I once asked you years ago in an email how you prepare for the show, (laughs) and you wrote me back, prepare? Do you not prepare at all, PJ? I really don't, because first place, I mean, it's a fake contest. I don't mean it's a fake contest and it's rigged. It's it's a fake contest because there's no purpose in winning it. (laughs) The purpose is is to be funny, uh, to, to, to entertain the audience, to be informed. Uh, so I don't care whether I uh, 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 whether I win or lose. Although I think it's fun that we'd have some panelists who do. I mean, I think that definitely adds to the mix. But by being generally well informed, I feel like I'm prepared, even if I don't happen to know about the news event that happened the previous day. You're you're best known as a writer. National Lampoon, Rolling Stone, 19 books, uh, Parliament of Horrors, of course, New York Times bestsellers. So was switching to radio when you joined? Wait, wait in 2001 was that nerve-wracking oh no no i i've been a uh uh first place you can't go through book tours without spending quite a bit of time on the radio and uh, in the second place that, that i had spent the uh three months during the uh gulf war as a radio correspondent for abc what is going on over there where you are well you know in some ways you guys probably know as well as we do you're getting the same feeds back from those embed uh reporters uh, it looks like uh, we're going up the uh, left side of Iraq, uh, throwing a left hook towards Baghdad, and on the right side, uh, they're approaching the second biggest city in Iraq. Do you remember your first show on Wait, Wait? Oh, uh, no. <laughs> no? You really don't? No, all I, rem- I, all I remember is it was close enough to 9-11 that we were still trying to figure out how to be funny under the circumstances. Uh, it didn't cast a pall over just one week. It cast a pall over months. What was the hardest lesson to learn about being a panelist? Well, the the original lesson was not talking over each other when we got five of us on a mic. You know, I mean, that, that was hell. You know, because you, you can't give eye signals or hand signals or, you know, wink at each other or, you know, do the throat slitting motion <laughs> <laughs> or the wrap it up motion. <laughs> we do kind of have uh, a repertoire of motions and gestures when we're doing the show, don't we, PJ? Like, we, we probably don't oh, think absolutely. of them consciously, but do you want to describe no. some of them? Well, it's it's a little difficult because even though we are all there and can see each other, we're all facing the audience. So we're not, you know, it would be even easier if we were all facing each other. But we are, we do keep our peripheral vision working and we can see when somebody's fidgeting or when Peter's head is about to explode. Um, <laughs> he makes that clear. <laughs> He makes that clear, yes, yes. His body language is, 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 is fluent. How did they first approach you to be on the show? Oh, uh, I was uh, uh, sitting in a bar in uh, Macedonia. <laughs> what? <laughs> As one does. <laughs> so the guy that's got Mike's job, 
the executive producer. Executive producer, Rod Abib. So I knew Rod for years and years as a fellow foreign correspondent. Uh, we'd bumped into each other, I don't know where, you know, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Israel, number of times. So I'm sitting in a bar in Macedonia, uh, getting ready to go into Kosovo the next day. Kosovo was all falling apart. And uh, I look up, and there's Rod. I go, hi. Rod goes, hi. And so we sit down, and we have a beer. And he said, oh, I'm getting tired of this foreign correspondent stuff. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm getting too old to be scared stiff and too stiff to sleep on the ground and hmm. so on and so forth. And we're moaning, and he said, yeah, you know, there's this idea, um, this show we're talking about, NPR show we're talking about, you know, where it's gonna, it's like a panel making fun of the news. And I'm not sure it even had a name yet. And he said, would you be interested? And I said, sure, absolutely. And then I didn't hear from anybody for about three years. And then one day, Rod phoned <laughs> and said, remember that one we were talking about in the bar in Macedonia? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> That's, PJ, you have the best origin story of, ever, of anybody yeah, it was a good one. Yeah. Do you have a favorite, wait, wait, don't tell me, memory? Oh, completely. But it has nothing to do with what went on on the show. Uh, it was when Dick Cheney shot the lawyer. <laughs> and Peter had to call me up to find out basically what a shotgun is. What? So now, is, well, yeah. I mean, he had to call me up. So How is that different from a rifle? Oh, fair enough. <laughs> that's, a, that's a solid so, question. It was a solid question, so I had to explain the difference. I felt like the ambassador to NPR from, uh, you know, some exotic— Conservative Landia. A conservative Landia. And I, anyway, so I had to explain what a shotgun was and how shotguns work, and then I had to explain how something like that could happen, which is actually, uh, unfortunately, as a, as a avid bird hunter, is is all too easily. So you're being the ambassador from conservative Landia to NPR to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Um makes you really unique. I mean, you're known as being the the resident, reliable, conservative voice on, on the show. Does does that ever feel like pressure? No, not at all. You know, it is a little amazing to me that, that, that people live in a world uh, that there are a lot of people, and a lot of them listen to NPR, who live in a world where they know the difference between uh, GMO-free and fair-traded. They know whether something is organic, whether it's gluten-free, and so on and so forth. And yet they don't know the difference between hay and straw. Um, um, I so, <laughs> don't know the difference between hay and straw, PJ. Well, hay is the edible part. Straw is the stalk. Oh, thank straw you. Is, straw is used for things like bedding. Animals will chew on it, but it has no significant nutritive value. Hay is what they eat. Thank you, PJ. Same plant, different part of the plant. I mean, can you remember a moment during the show where you actually had to explain something to the audience or to your to your fellow panelists? Well, yes. How about when Trump got elected? You explained it? Well, I don't think I did a very good job because everybody was had their heads turned to one side looking like puzzled puppies. <laughs> so, no, I don't think I succeeded. But, I mean, it just... I mean, Trump being elected just came as absolutely no shock to me, and I don't think it came to a shock to anybody um, who lives in 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 regular America. Uh, it, it, it's not that we liked it necessarily, and I didn't vote for him. I detest the guy, but it came as absolutely no shock, and I think it did come as a shock to a lot of people who don't live in that world. They didn't understand how really truly angry the voters were. In 2016, you announced that you were going to support Hillary Clinton 
instead of Donald yeah, Trump. Yeah, I did. Well, I didn't suppose, go so far as to say supporter, but I voted for him. Yeah, and you announced that, yeah. and you chose to yeah. do it on Wait, Wait. It was very exciting. <laughs> well, Peter, I have a little announcement yes, to make. Yes, what is your announcement? Yeah, I have a little announcement to make. I mean, my whole purpose in life basically is to offend everyone who listens to NPR. <laughs> to take, no matter what position they take on anything, like I'm on the other side of it, you know. I'm voting for Hillary. What? I am endorsing Hillary and all her lies and all her empty promises. I am endorsing Hillary. It's the second worst thing that could happen to this country, but it's... She's way behind in second place, you know? I mean, she's wrong about absolutely everything, but she's wrong within normal parameters. That is a ringing endorsement. (laughs) Why why did that feel like the right place to do it? Oh, we've been talking about it backstage. It was uh, was no plan to it. You know, it just seemed like the, the, you know, it was time to say something about that. I didn't want, um, I I, I didn't want people to think that, that, that all conservative Republicans, I mean, I'm, it, a real straight out. I'm conventionally religious. I'm opposed to abortion. I, uh, with the exception of this jerk in the White House right now, I almost always vote Republican as it being the least worst of the choices available. Um, and I just didn't want people to think that all people like me thought that people like Trump were okay because mm. they're not. Your dad was a car dealer. We had a family car dealership. O'Rourke Buick in Toledo. Was was he really good at talking you into doing things you didn't want to do? <laughs> no. My dad wasn't that kind of salesman. He was one of those people, you bought the car and you go, well, he didn't say anything. <laughs> really? He was a man of few words? <laughs> yes, yes. He, he was very... Uh, uh, um, every pretty much everybody in the family was they had this kind of low key sales approach. It was uh, it was quite successful. My grandfather was a buggy mechanic. He was apprenticed to a buggy making company as I, when he was about twelve. He only finished fifth grade. So the O'Rourke's have actually been in the car business uh, about as long as the Fords. I want you to keep calling it a buggy. The O'Rourke buggy yes. business. I love my, my that. My grandfather did. Yeah, my grandfather said, you bring the buggy around. <laughs> what century was this? This was uh, in the late 1890s. Wow. So if, if you came from a family, especially of men, of few words, but lots of buggies, um, how, how did you become the loquacious black sheep? How come you had so much to say? <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't say they were men of few words. Their sales technique may have been uh, uh, may have been sort of a, a soft sell. Uh, no, they were a very talkative, loud and talkative family, just as loud and talkative as I am. And they conveyed all their emotions through humor. In contrast to my mother's waspy family, who had no emotions. <laughs> I, I'm easily moved, Are emotionally you? easily moved. Yeah, I mean, not not about big things, but but a sad potato chip commercial will get me every time, you know, <laughs> or one of those light beer commercials that really touched the heart. You know, there's an old Irish saying about that. You know, wet eye, dry heart. PJ, thank you so much. It is so great to talk to you, and I hope I get to see you soon. Yeah, me too, Faith. This was fun. That's PJ O'Rourke. Whenever you hear a questionable accent on Wait, Wait, there's a high probability that it's Maz Jabrani putting his talents on display. I look outside and I think, why is there a shark at pump number eight? (laughs) 
Then I look again and I see there is also mermaid. I go to my son baseball game. First of all, I'm not so much understanding the baseball. Why are you not kicking the ball? You know, your comedy is often autobiographical. I mean, in the name of your memoir is, what is it? I'm not a terrorist, but I play one on TV. Is that what it yeah, is? Yeah, I'm not a terrorist, but I've played one I've on played TV. I've played one, yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's often sort of about how you've been, just because of the way you look, you've been mistaken for different ethnicities, just sort of like all-purpose terrorist. You can be cast that way. Um, but people can't see you on the radio. So does that influence the way you make your jokes? Does that influence your humor on Wait, Wait? Not really. I mean, you know, the the thing with the terrorist roles, what was interesting was it was an it, that kind of happened early in my career where I still had a day job and I ended up doing a Chuck Norris movie of the week where I played an Afghan terrorist. Very impressive, Ali. Where did you ever learn such skills? I've lived here in Chicago for 10 years now. Your father, Rashid, he paid for my education. A PhD in applied physics from Northwestern. And the reason I took it was because I thought that it would A, help me get out of my day job, and B, I thought that I could bring some humanity to this character and through my acting show why the guy is doing what he's doing. And in retrospect, I realized I was kind of an idiot because it was a Chuck Norris movie of <laughs> the week. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, and so actually after I did that, I, I told my agents, I don't want to do any more terrorist parts. And then the TV show 24 got in touch. They said, we have a terrorist part. I said, no, thank you. And they go, but he changes his mind halfway through the mission. And I was like, ooh, okay, the ambivalent terrorist. That sounds interesting. <laughs> so that was the last time I played a terrorist, and I haven't had, and I haven't done it since, and I've said no to those since. And then on. Um, Wait, wait, you know, I mean, when I do my stand-up, I talk like this. And when I talk normally, this is how I talk. And then on wait, wait, uh, I think what happened was I love accents regardless, as much as I also love speaking like this myself, but I love doing accents. Um, I was a big fan of Peter Sellers as a kid. And so um, whenever I can work accents into a joke that I'm telling on wait, wait, or one of the bluff the listeners... I do it. And actually, it's funny. It became kind of a... I did a few times, and then Peter Sagal on air would, at the end of it, would say, for those of you who are writing letters, please address them to Moz. And, you know, don't (laughs) criticize us for encouraging him to do these bad accents. Wait, so so you've tried a whole bunch of accents. A bunch of them. A bunch of them, and I've and I've admitted that they're not spot on because what happens is I think I think there were people were writing Peter and the crew going whatever this you know this Czech accent he's doing is off <laughs> this you know Slovenian accent he's doing is totally off and I'm not a accent expert I'm just trying to have fun and and that's the beauty of being a comedian you can kind of be mediocre at, at the accents and make it fun and funny so what was your best worst accent during the show. Oh, gosh. I don't know. You know, it's funny because what's happened is now I intentionally look for moments to do the accent to so that I can bug Peter a little bit. Okay, so give um, me give me an example of one of your favorite bug Peter with your terrible accent moments. So I know that, like, I did a Bluff the Listener one time, which the bit was ridiculous sports or parents doing ridiculous things for their kids. And so I'd written this piece 
that said um, in an effort to have kids not feel bad about losing, there's a soccer league that plays soccer with an imaginary ball. There's no ball. Competition in youth soccer games can get pretty heated. So heated that the young can sometimes lose perspective on the lessons of camaraderie and teamwork that come with the game. That's why a group of soccer moms in Austin, Texas, have recently banded together to tweak the game and make it less competitive. We figured if we take the ball out of the game, it would make the kids focus more on each other and less on scoring. says Amy Baxter, who spearheaded the movement. Now the kids just go out there and pretend to kick a ball. They have to use their imagination and create a collaborative environment. Nobody loses and everybody wins. But not everyone is on board with this ballless youth soccer league. Maria Rodriguez, who recently moved her family from Spain, was a bit perplexed. I, uh, I don't know how you play the soccer or uh, football, as we call it in Barcelona, uh, without a ball. I am having a tough time explaining to my son to kick the ball when there is no ball to kick. I say to him, kick the ball. He say, where is it? I say, I don't know. Use your imagination. Uh, did you grow up in a funny family? Yeah, my father was very gregarious. He was larger than life. He was, um, you know, he passed away when he was 76 years old. And he used to say to me, he said, he said, I'm, I'm, you know, I've lived seven. He said, I'm 70 years old or whatever. I'm in my 70s, but I feel like I've lived 700 years. He was always the life of the party. And what would happen is in the culture that we came from, my father was from northern Iran. So it was close to uh, the Russian border uh, this city named Tabriz. And so drinking was a big part of that. So he would have friends over all the time and they would drink and then they'd all be drunk. And then Persian parties tend to end up with people all sitting around at the end of the night and one guy will sing and another person will recite poetry and someone will tell jokes. It's like a talent show. Um, so, And were you, f- as a kid, were you allowed to stay up and behold? I, I think I was allowed, but I didn't want to. It was boring as hell for me. I was like, I don't want to watch a, watch a bunch of old drunk, drunk people old sing. <laughs> you know, are you kidding me? And it's funny because when my father would sing, he would sing. Uh, so Tabriz, they spoke a Turkish dialect because it's also near Turkey. So my father would sing not in Persian. He would sing in the Turkish dialect. And he had a pretty good kind of deep operatic voice that I can, you know, in life I, I've I've learned to imitate. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, he was, he was, uh, he was a character. Can, he was, I, I th- can I hear some of your dad, please? You know, I'm going to sing. Uh, so I didn't, I speak Persian, but, and, and I wish I'd learned my father's dialect. I just knew a few words from his dialect, but there was one song that he would sing that I think was either Azerbaijani or something. And it went like this. It goes, Gülü gülü tümane, tümane, sakini day, gızın aynay. Gülü gülü gül besare, vay sare, vay vay. Gülü gülü gül besare, besare, vay vay. That's kind of the beginning of it. And then I don't really know. That's fantastic. Goes. What did you just say? I have no idea. That's what I'm telling you. It's. I think I tried. I asked a cousin of mine who spoke the dialect, and I think it's like a, is like some it's some song about some woman or something. I'm not sure. It's always about a woman. What is your very favorite? Wait, wait. Don't tell me memory. Gosh, there's there's so many. I mean, I got a chance to say when Bill Clinton was on, I got a chance to say, 
you know, hello, Mr. President Clinton. And so I was yeah. like, oh, I've talked to Bill Clinton. <laughs> that was in my mind. Uh, that was one. Um, here's the other thing that's really interesting to me is I have, as a stand-up comedian that tours, I have um, found like I've almost tapped into a whole other fan culture that I never knew existed. So now, quite often when I do like a meet and greet after my show, I can kind of pick out as people are waiting in line to come by and you know get a signed T-shirt or whatever it is. I can kind of pick out the NPR people. I'm like, oh, that's How? NPR. How? Well, okay. So as a Middle Eastern American, I have my Middle Eastern fans. So I know they know me from whatever my stand-up or whatever, or just being Middle Eastern because we've had so much bad press. If any of us, if any one of us does anything halfway decent, the community rallies around us. So <laughs> I'm like, okay, that guy's Iranian. Okay, uh, that that one's uh, you know uh, that one's Lebanese. Okay, I got that. I got that. Then I'll get like sometimes I'll get like African American, like younger African American, kind of like someone who is like looks kind of hip. And I'm like, okay, that kid might be from this movie I did. And I'm usually right. And then I'll get like an older white couple who like the guy's got a sweater and he's got the you know he's got the uh, the khaki pants and they're very sweet and they're they're just taking their time and as they come I'm like oh here it is and they'll be like we hear you on wait wait don't tell me and I was like I know you know it's like I knew because where else are they going to find me that's Maz Jabrani after the break Helen Hong on what it's like to be the new kid on the block Support for this NPR podcast and the following message comes from Walmart Grocery Pickup. With Walmart Grocery Pickup, you don't even have to get out of your car. Order your groceries online and let them do the shopping and loading for you. Get fresh groceries and save time. Visit walmart.com slash grocery today and get $10 off your first order with trial code don't wait. There are more ways to Walmart. First order only $50 minimum. Expires January 31st, 2019. Welcome back to Wait, Wait, Naked and Ashamed. Helen Hong is a master of getting her foot in the door. She's been with the show for two years, and she's still bursting with as much excitement to be on Wait, Wait as day one. Helen, when um, when we reached out to you to interview for this, you I, I think you wrote in all caps that Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me was, uh, was the top item on your bucket it, list for yes. a decade. Yeah. I mean, I love the show too, but why? I mean, top item. Wow. <laughs> Yes, I have been a fan of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me probably since college-ish, I think, is when I discovered NPR. And uh, I, and then, you know, many years after college is when I started doing stand-up comedy. And like a year into stand-up comedy, I was like, you know what? Doing, like being a panelist on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is the top of my bucket list. It is. And I literally wrote it out. I had a bucket list. And my bucket list items are ridiculous, like hook up with Angelina and Brad Pitt. Mm. But this is back when they were actually still married. But ahead of hooking up with Brangelina was be a panelist on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me because I was such a big fan of the show. And because I was then a stand-up comedian, I was like, I, they have stand-up comedians on the show? I, I'm a stand-up comedian. I could pos- There's a possibility. And so I li- was living in New York when I first started stand-up. I didn't know anyone who was on the show. I just couldn't see how it would be possible. But it was just a faraway dream, a beautiful dream that I had. And then I moved to Los Angeles yeah. and in 
Doing the L.A. comedy circuit, I was fortunate enough to meet and befriend Alonzo Bowden and Maz Jabrani. I know those guys. Yes! Regular longtime panelists on the show. And I, you know, just befriended them doing the circuit. And then, and then here's the magic part. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me was coming to Los Angeles to do a road show. And Maz Jabrani was going to be a hometown panelist. And so I wrote to Maz and I was like, Maz, I'm a really big fan of Wait, Wait. I know you don't know this about me, but I'm like a rabid fan. And could you could you get me comp tickets to the show? Because I would love to see it because it's like my favorite thing on earth. And he was like, yeah, yeah, of course. Not only that, but there's an after party where all the producers and panelists will be and you can come as my guest. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And Maz is such a lovely, generous spirit that everyone that he introduced me to, he was like, Helen's a comic too, and she's great. She's so, so funny. You should have her on. You guys should definitely have her on. He said that to literally everyone that I met. And he said it to Mike Danforth, and Mike was like, great, you know, let's see what our schedules are like. And it was just, I was like, I can't believe this is happening. So I, I still can't, you know, I've been doing the show now for two years, and I still can't believe it's happening. And that's why they've made their little stage intro, the intro that the 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 listening audience doesn't hear, but the the the, the um in in studio audience, mm-hmm. uh, the, the actual live audience hears when you first when we first come out to the stage. My intro is always like, "No, it's not an act. She really is that happy." <laughs> the woman who looks like she's having more fun than anyone else in America, Helen Hall. But I was really, really nervous. And I will say, um, Anne Nguyen, who was the CFO at the time, she's mm-hmm. no longer now, but she was CFO at the time, um, she, also a fellow Asian sister, she was lovely enough to pull me aside. And being a fellow Asian sister and looking out for me, she was like, she she told me the, exactly what I said, which she said, um, if you don't make it a point to speak, you're never going to be able to speak because these people, nobody's going to stop for you. Nobody's going to like pause and say, Helen, what are your thoughts on this? You just got to jump in and dive in whenever you can. And um, the problem we've had with a lot of new panelists is that they're, they don't want to be offensive or they don't want to, you know, they think they have to be polite or they have to wait for someone to stop speaking. And a lot of them just never get their thoughts in. So if I were to give you, you know, looking out for an Asian sister and you're a brand new panel, just jump in whenever you can. You know, at the time I was the only woman on the panel. And that's the other thing is, you know, I'm often the only woman on a stage with five men. And I want to speak then because I'm representing all of womankind. You know, and if I don't speak and if I'm polite, then womankind is not being represented on the stage. So I made it a point to speak because I was the only woman on that panel. And because I was a newbie, I was like, ooh. I'm getting it out there. I flew today. I understand. <laughs> Do you fly first class? Not to come to NPR. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I'm going I, I, to I, when I, I'm I, going to meet with or talk to grown-ups, yes, I do fly first I, class. I love the idea, PJ, of you going to coach for the first time. And you'd be like, no, really, where do you like me to sit? Really? <laughs> I do. When I have to walk through first class, I am definitely passive-aggressive about it. And I mm. will uh, save a fart for that moment. <laughs> really? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I'll let, a, I'll let a good one rip right mm-hmm. in. 
between the, seats one and two. The Boom. flight attendants have us. They call it crop dust. They do. They, they enjoy doing yeah. Go, yeah, yeah. On the other hand, slightly on the other hand, I think also when you get when one gets comfortable with the show, you you back off of a sort of urgency of like, oh my gosh, I have to speak now. I have yeah. to get a joke in, and you are able to listen and build together. I do feel that. I feel like I am more present now in my second year than uh, when I was in my first year. I was like, I had jokes prepared. You know, I had listened to the news voraciously that week. And I had thoughts and jokes and ideas. And I was like, oh, I got to get, you know. And, and and there have been a couple of shows where that bit me in the butt because they didn't talk about the topics that I had prepared. And I was like, oh, God, I had all these jokes prepared. and They're not even going to tackle that subject. So I can't even get that joke in. So now I do feel like in my second year and I am a little bit more calm and I am a little bit more um, confident in my you know role on the show I'm like okay I can just be present I am a funny person I can be funny in the moment and I can just be present and react naturally and authentically to whatever is happening I mean that's why Peter Sagal is as brilliant as he is you know half the time he's just like riffing off the top of his head and he's so funny you also worked on reality TV shows, yeah. right? As, mm-hmm. as, uh, as a director, producer. Um, yeah, that's Say right. yes to the dress, mm-hmm. for weddings, what not to wear. Very, that's right. Very um, satisfyingly superficial, by the way. I love those shows. <laughs> um, so what, what are the differences between reality TV and reality radio? Unscripted. Um, it's reality TV is not unscripted. <laughs> it's just not. I hate to break it to people, but it's everything's scripted to a certain extent. You know, there's always some producer. That was my job as the producer. I would just be like the the dude in the corner, just like, psst, psst, what do you think about that? What do you think he should feel about that? Don't you think? Like trying to stir the pot for drama. Um, and reality radio is not like that. You know, that's, that's the fun thing about our show is that it's just comedians being like, ugh, here's what's ridiculous about this actual event that's happened and how ridiculous is it? I have to say, Helen, for a smallish woman, you are very good at having long enough selfie arms. You're good about you're good about the pre the post show selfie. Oh my god, I love the selfie. Oh, Peter hates it. Peter has admonished me mid selfie because I, he's like, Helen, we're doing a radio show, and I'm like, right, 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 because <laughs> I have to selfie. Like every time we take a commercial break, and Phil Curtis is like, one eight hundred hardwood, <laughs> and the audience just starts cracking up, and I'm taking a video. And then we start the show again. Peter's like, okay, Helen, it's time to put the phone away. And I'm like, right, right. Helen, that's how Peter is for me with puns. You're like, like, (laughs) Helen, put the phone away. No selfies, Faith, no puns. I I feel feel it. I get it. Um, Helen, uh, I mean, you're two years and counting into the show, but I I think it's never uh, too late to say welcome. Welcome to the club. (gasps) Thank you. Thank you, Faith. And... It's it's such an honor, and I, I still pinch myself every time I get to do it. And it's literally, it, it really was my bucket list come true. And, you know, and my bucket list is, it's so much cooler than skydiving, guys. Getting on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is so much cooler than skydiving. <laughs> that was Helen Hong. Next time on Wait, Wait, Naked and Ashamed... Alonzo Bowden makes his family proud. Wow, 
Bowden. Do you know Alonzo Bowden? My brother's like, used to beat him up. And Roxanne Roberts reflects on her slightly competitive streak. The Venn diagram for me is reporter in the middle and uh, cookie cake gingerbread person, Martha Stewart-ish, and then poker player. That's next time on Wait, Wait, Naked and Ashamed. Naked and Ashamed.